Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. Due to the graphic nature of these events, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of police brutality, murder, and racism. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Robert Carlyle was known around town as a mean drunk. A rancher with a nice plot of land out in Rancho Cucamonga, Carlyle had a tendency to run his mouth once the whiskey started to flow. And that was exactly what happened on July 5th, 1865. Carlyle was convinced that the King brothers, a well-known Los Angeles County family, were after his land. And during a wedding at the Bella Union Hotel downtown, Carlyle waved around his pistol and bowie knife, proclaiming he wasn't afraid of them. As it turned out, one of the brothers, Andrew Jack King, was a deputy sheriff for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. He confronted Carlisle and stumbled out of the hotel with a giant cut in his arm, courtesy of Carlisle's knife. But instead of telling his boss, the sheriff, about Carlisle's attack, Deputy King told his brothers, Frank and Houston. After hearing about the threats, Houston turned to Frank and said, let's go call on Carlisle and see if he's gonna do it. At noon the next day, Frank and Houston King entered the Bella Union Hotel. Robert Carlyle, nursing a hangover, was waiting for them. Soon after the King brothers stepped foot inside, the bullets started flying. When the smoke cleared, Frank King and Robert Carlyle were both dead. Houston King and a couple of civilians were injured. The shootout at the Bella Union was just another day in Los Angeles County, a place founded on bloodshed and bedlam. And a place where the Wild West culture continues to live on within the LASD's deputy gangs. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Alastair Murden. This is a special crossover episode of Secret Societies and Kingpins, both Spotify originals from Parcast. On this special, we're taking you on a deep dive into the deputy gangs hidden within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. This week, we're going to take a step back to chronicle the LASD's early history, tracing their Wild West roots. We'll dive into the dark beginnings of a county that required ruthless force to ensure law and order, and we'll explore how the Sheriff's Department's Wild West culture has survived for 150 years, thanks to deputy gangs like the Jump Out Boys. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In episode one, we discussed how the 1970s was considered the last decade in which Los Angeles bore some resemblance to the frontier town it had once been. But is that entirely true? For all of California's liberal and progressive history, there's one organization still stuck in the past, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. For over 150 years, the sheriffs and their deputies have held on to Southern California's Wild West roots, a bygone era full of desperados, cattle rustlers, and bank robbers, in which frontier justice was required to tame one of the most dangerous cities on this side of the Mississippi River. In the early 1800s, the Los Angeles region was an agrarian melting pot, a diverse mix of Mexican, Spanish, Afro-Mexican, indigenous, and Anglo residents. But even though they all lived and worked in the same vicinity, racial tensions quickly formed. Over the next decades, two events dramatically changed the cultural dynamic, and not necessarily for the best, the Mexican-American War and the Gold Rush. In 1846, war broke out between the United States and Mexico following the U.S. annexation of Texas. The fighting in California only lasted a year. As a result, many veterans, Mexican and American alike, were left with nothing to do. Those bored veterans found their way into the growing Los Angeles saloons, gambling halls, and bordellos. Naturally, lingering tensions among these men often resulted in whiskey-fueled violence. But the very next year, in 1848, something briefly distracted them. Gold was discovered in Northern California. Gold fever swept through the continent. Men and women from all walks of life flocked to the Sierra Nevadas to get rich quick. And the first people to make their way north were Southern Californians. And while some did get rich digging precious metal out of the earth, the vast majority failed. Often, these desperate men fell into poverty, sinking their life savings into a dream that never materialized. About a year into the gold rush, many returned to Los Angeles with nothing to show for it. Desperation and destitution was a bad mix. Compounding that was an influx of so-called Mexican bandits into L.A., supposedly looking to capitalize on the growing fortunes of the few. By the start of the 1850s, Los Angeles became one of the most dangerous places to live in the West. No one describes it better than Horace Bell, a man who made L.A. his home during this period. Bell wrote, it was a fact that all of the bad characters who had been driven from the mines had taken refuge in Los Angeles, while, on the other hand, all of the outlaws of the Mexican frontier made for the California gold mines. The cutthroats naturally met at Los Angeles. It was during this bloody and lawless period when Los Angeles County formed, and with it, the Sheriff's Department. 
In preparation for statehood, the territory of California was broken up into 27 counties. When Los Angeles County was declared in 1850, it was, by far, the largest in California. Initially, L.A. County covered over 4,300 square miles, but it eventually grew to 34,000 square miles. At one point, it stretched from San Diego to Santa Barbara and from the Pacific Ocean to the border of what would soon become Nevada. George Thompson Burrill became Los Angeles County's first elected sheriff in April 1850. Burrill's main responsibilities were to carry out the orders of the county government and courts, maintain the county jail, and have the distinct pleasure of collecting taxes. But just because there was a sheriff didn't mean law and order came to Los Angeles. In fact, during Burrill's tenure, 31 murders were reported in a population of around 2,500. According to historian John Bosnecker, this was the highest known homicide rate ever reported in the United States. Many of the underlying issues, outside of just a general sense of lawlessness and danger, stemmed from the lack of policing. The sheriff's department only had three people on the payroll, the sheriff and two deputies, and one of those deputies was often the jailer. Making matters worse was the fact that throughout the 1850s, there was an upswing in gang activity, especially by gangs of cattle rustlers and highwaymen. In order to stop the violence, the community decided to band together and form a vigilante group known as the Los Angeles Rangers. Although the Rangers were approved by the mayor, they were nothing more than an organized posse of volunteers. Their sole purpose was to patrol the countryside searching for outlaws. This idea of unofficial official law enforcement was welcomed with open arms by the undermanned LASD, especially by the new sheriff, James Barton. James Barton was elected sheriff in 1851, one year after the department's creation. During his tenure, he would become emblematic of the ruthless, frontier-style lawman commonly seen in film and television, for better or for worse. Sheriff Barton had no qualms about vigilante justice. So, with his blessing, the Los Angeles Rangers scoured the mountains and deserts, putting down thieves and desperados in extrajudicial shootouts. And the people loved it. One local newspaper wrote, the Rangers have always evinced a commendable willingness to do their duty in bringing violators of the law to merited justice. Public good and public protection are all they have brought. Despite the public support, the Rangers disbanded sometime around 1856, but their spirit and legacy lived on. Many of the later LA sheriffs were alumni of the Rangers, being attached to the group appeared to help sheriff candidates get elected. Those sheriffs carried a philosophy with them from the Ranger days. The LASD was in over its head, and the only way for crime to be put down was through vigilantism, especially when it came to the notorious Las Manillas gang. Las Manillas, Spanish for the handcuffs, was formed by outlaws Juan Flores and Pancho Daniel in the spring of 1856. Eventually, another notorious bandit, Andres Fuentes, joined the gang as well. 
Las Manias roamed around central California, stealing cattle and robbing the mostly white settlers. And with each passing day, they added to their growing army. Some accounts claim that the gang surpassed 50 men. In January 1857, Las Manias made their way to the town of San Juan Capistrano, roughly 50 miles south of downtown LA. They raided a couple of general stores, killing an unarmed German store owner. To put an end to the terror, Sheriff James Barton organized a six-man posse and set out to search for the gang. Though Barton was told that Las Manillas heavily outnumbered them, he ignored the warning and rode south anyway. On January 23rd, Barton and his posse came upon a lone rider about 15 miles from San Juan Capistrano. During the pursuit, the posse was suddenly surrounded by roughly 50 men. It was an ambush. For several minutes, all anyone could hear was the crackling sound of gunpowder. And when the smoke cleared, Barton had been struck by three bullets in his heart and one in his right eye. Three members of his posse also died in the gunfight. The death of the sheriff in the deadliest town in the West intensified the thirst for vigilante justice. And by the time Barton's body was in the ground, the largest manhunt in California history was on. Coming up, the manhunt to bring down Barton's killers solidifies the lore of extrajudicial killings in Los Angeles County. Hi, listeners. If you love all things true crime, do I have a show for you. It's the Spotify original from Parcast, Unsolved Murders. Every Tuesday, join hosts Carter and Wendy as they examine a real murder that, to this day, remains a mystery. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show, Unsolved Murders uses an ensemble cast of actors to take you on a journey through the crime scene and its ensuing investigation. And while each murder technically remains unsolved, at the end of each case, you'll get a thorough explanation of who the most likely culprit is and their motivation. From LA's Black Dahlia to Egypt's Cleopatra, Unsolved Murders brings you closer than ever to crimes that have no tidy resolutions. It's always been a favorite of mine, and I have no doubt you'll love it too. Follow Unsolved Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. On January 23rd, 1857, L.A. Sheriff James Barton was ambushed by the notorious Las Manias gang. When the smoke cleared, Barton and three of his men were dead. Now, the hunt was on to bring down their killers. The search for Las Manillas was everything one would expect to see in a John Wayne film. Soldiers from nearby forts, civilian militias, and vigilante posses formed to search high and low for the gang of desperados. In particular, they had their eyes on three main leaders, Juan Flores, Andres Fuentes, and Pancho Daniel. Hoping to evade capture, the gang scattered, taking advantage of the rocky terrain. But within a week, Flores's trail was picked up by the El Monte Posse, a group made up of 26 white men from the small town of El Monte. They chased Flores and two other outlaws into a nearby cave 
and a gunfight broke out. By the end of the fight, Flores and the other bandits surrendered. They were imprisoned in a nearby adobe house before being escorted back to Los Angeles. That evening, however, the guard watching the outlaws fell asleep. Seizing the moment, Flores and two others escaped. Flores bypassed Los Angeles undetected and headed north toward Ventura. While riding through a mountain pass in present-day Simi Valley, he happened upon two soldiers on patrol. He tried to lie to the soldiers, claiming that he was just a poor rancher. But the weary soldiers took Flores into custody, where he was immediately recognized. Later that day, Flores was escorted back to Los Angeles. The gang's two other leaders were still on the run, but for a brief moment, the people of Los Angeles had cause to celebrate. And then that celebration turned to riotous anger. On February 14th, a vigilante mob decided they didn't want to give Flores a trial. Instead, roughly 3,000 people marched to the county jail, demanding the interim sheriff and his deputies hand over Flores. They did. The mob took Flores to a nearby hill historically used for lynchings. According to a local newspaper, Flores's last words were that he was ready to die, that he had committed many crimes, and that he didn't bear any man ill will. A hastily made noose was placed around his neck, but the short drop didn't snap Flores's neck as it should have. The rope was too small, causing the bandit to slowly suffocate to death. Former Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department official Sven Krongeier doesn't rule out the possibility that the botched hanging was done on purpose, as payback for the death of Sheriff James Barton. A year and a half later, Pancho Daniel met the same fate as his fellow gang leader. Daniel was captured in 1858. While in custody awaiting trial, a 200-person mob stormed the county jail and demanded Daniel's release. Instead of taking him to a gallows scaffold, they simply threw a rope around a nearby crossbeam and hanged him. According to a Los Angeles Times article, nine more gang members eventually found their ends hanging from a crossbeam without receiving a trial. Worse yet, the extrajudicial killings weren't only used against known gang members, innocent people became victims too. Sheriff Barton's death stoked the flames of racial tensions in the area. In the immediate aftermath of the gunfight, the LA Marshal arrested 40 Hispanic residents known as Californios, simply on the assumption that they may have been members of Las Manillas. Even after all the gang's leaders were apprehended, lynch mobs targeted any Californios who may or may not have had a passing association with Las Manillas. For example, Encarnacion Berriesa and Diego Navarro were accused of either giving Juan Flores safe passage or directly involved in Barton's death. No evidence ever supported these rumors and accusations. The Latino population knew that the only way to keep the peace was to publicly proclaim their sympathies for Barton. They did all they could to distance themselves from Las Manillas, but unfortunately, the mob was out for blood and innocent people were killed as a result. Such was the way of Los Angeles County as the years passed. 
In the fall of 1863, a small group of outlaws known as the Danewood Gang were awaiting trial in the county jail. A vigilante mob came to the conclusion that the legal system was too slow. So, 200 people stormed the jail to speed things up. An 18-year-old named Andrew Wood was in jail at the time for chicken theft. Unfortunately for Wood, he was lumped in with the Damewood gang during the chaos, and his body swung from the beams as well. One month later, another lynch mob formed to bring frontier justice to a known killer named Charles Wilkins. The sheriff was in the middle of escorting Wilkins to jail when they were confronted by angry vigilantes. The sheriff was forced to hand his prisoner over. It seems strange that a man of the law would allow mob rule to dictate his actions. After all, he was the man with the badge. But in LA, that wasn't how it worked. Unlike other notorious frontier towns like Hayes or Deadwood, LA's population was steadily growing, but the sheriff's department didn't grow with it. Many of these mobs were in the hundreds, and no amount of deputizing was going to keep them at bay. It also didn't help that many of these lynch mobs were racially based. More often than not, when a non-white person committed a crime, due process was seemingly thrown out the window. A list of lynchings throughout LA history shows that the vast majority of the victims had Hispanic or indigenous names. White names are few and far between. Which probably explains why, in the wake of the Bella Union Hotel shootout in 1865, there was no vigilante justice against the surviving King brothers. Perhaps because the dispute was between two white parties, citizens felt there was no need to dole out violence. However, people of other races didn't fare as well. And in 1871, a white lynch mob committed one of the worst crimes in LA's history. At that time, the population of Los Angeles hovered around 6,000 people. Less than 200 of them were Chinese immigrants. These immigrants mostly settled into the notoriously violent and seedy Calle de los Negros, a street filled with saloons, bordellos, and gambling halls. Throughout the 1850s and 60s, relations between the Chinese immigrants and the other ethnic groups were fairly neutral. That changed around 1869 when the local newspaper started running xenophobic editorials against the Chinese. Those racial tensions finally boiled over in October 1871. There are several versions of how the violence actually began, but the general consensus was this. Two rival Chinese businessmen were arguing over the price of a sex worker. The argument transitioned from heated words to lead bullets, and violence spilled into the streets. Two marshal's deputies rushed to put an end to the gunfight by responding with more gunfire of their own. When the shooting finally ended, a deputy was injured and a white civilian was dead. A vicious rumor spread throughout the city that the Chinese were on a mission to exterminate white people. A mob of 500 white locals marched down to Chinatown to put a stop to the non-existent race war. For four hours, they tore through Chinese homes and businesses, looting and destroying their property. They grabbed as many Chinese men they could find and hanged or shot them. During the chaos, the sheriff attempted to stop the mob by promising to arrest the Chinese men who instigated the shooting in the first place. 
but the mob ignored him. Allegedly, the sheriff deputized over 20 men and formed a posse to stop the rioting. But by the time it was organized, the mob had worn itself out and gone home. The Chinese massacre of 1871 would go down as one of the worst racial atrocities in Los Angeles history. Around 19 Chinese men were murdered and many more homes and businesses were robbed. To make the violent episode even worse, no one was severely punished for it. Of the 25 men indicted, only 10 stood trial. Of those 10, eight were found guilty of manslaughter, but less than a year later, all eight men had their sentences overturned. They returned home from prison, free men. After the Chinese massacre, vigilantism sharply dropped off in Los Angeles County. Everything was calm until June 1874, when a Californio simply known as Romo became one of the county's final extrajudicial lynchings of the Old West era. The story goes that Romo attempted to rob a general store in El Monte, injuring the store owner's wife in the process. Romo was caught and lynched by an angry mob. Historian Robert Blue posits that the reason for the sudden lynching after years without one may have been fear. A month before, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department captured the infamous Tiborcio Vasquez, leader of the Vasquez gang. It was believed that Romo was a member of the gang. Vasquez's capture put an end to one of California's last desperados, and Romo's lynching closed the book on vigilantism. In the decades that followed, Los Angeles, both city and county, seemed to quiet down. While there were random sparks of violence, such as bank or train robberies, the era of the untamed, lawless West appeared to be winding down. Except, as Los Angeles raced to a new century, the Sheriff's Department refused to shed its Wild West roots. That rogue, vigilante spirit lived on in the form of deputy gangs like the Linwood Vikings, the Grim Reapers, and the Jump Out Boys. Coming up, the Jump Out Boys hold on to Wild West culture. Now, back to the story. Toward the end of the 1800s, Los Angeles County was on the cusp of progress. After the Chinese massacre of 1871, extrajudicial violence had declined. Perhaps Los Angeles, slowly but surely, was becoming more civilized. The Board of Supervisors, the governing body of Los Angeles County, seemed to make that its mission heading into the 20th century. Unlike the police commissioners in the city of Los Angeles, which are appointed by the mayor, the sheriff is an elected official. However, it does, in some ways, have to answer to the Board of Supervisors. The board doesn't have the authority to hire or fire a sheriff, but it can exert oversight via the department's budget. The board also has the authority to appoint interim sheriffs until a new one is elected, if there's a vacancy. And in the early 1920s, the board realized this was their tool to decide who they wanted as sheriff. And their first victim was Sheriff John C. Klein. Sheriff Klein was first elected in 1892. In his first two-year term, Klein dealt with a final remnant of the past, the capture of a couple of train robbers. The takedown 
which spanned multiple counties, was everything one would expect from a dime store novel, and it helped earn Klein a respectable reputation. But after his first term, Klein moved on to other ventures, namely politics. 20 years later, in 1914, Klein ran for a second term and won. During that long hiatus, though, Los Angeles County had changed. Stuck in the past, Klein believed that he could still do as he pleased. The Board of Supervisors begged to differ. In 1920, Klein was accused of 21 different violations. Among them were the misappropriation of funds, appointing too many part-time special deputies, and requiring deputies to purchase their equipment from Klein's brother's store. He was found guilty on seven of the 21 counts and forced out of office. The Board of Supervisors refused to return the Sheriff's Department to its old, lawless ways. Los Angeles was growing faster than ever. If it wanted to become the New York of the West, it couldn't have renegade sheriffs. To that end, the Board began to meddle in the sheriff elections. Klein's replacement, William Traeger, served for 11 years before retiring in the middle of his term to run for Congress. This gave the board the authority to choose his replacement. They chose Eugene Biscalou. The board realized that if the incumbent sheriff was running for re-election, LA voters always voted for them. So a tradition formed. A sheriff would serve for as long as they wanted, then retire in the middle of a term. The board picked the replacement, and when the next election came around, the people kept them in office. This was how the machine operated for roughly 77 years. Under these board-approved sheriffs, the department modernized, incorporating new technology like radios, airplanes, and squad cars. The sheriffs themselves also became less and less gregarious. While Eugene Biscalou, the sheriff in the 1450s, was known to have a big, old-timey Western personality, much of that was for show. He took on the persona of the cowboy without actually being the cowboy when it came to policing the county. Once he retired, Biscalou's successors, Peter Pitches and Sherman Block, were considered dull, low-key, and non-confrontational. They may not have been above making evocative comments, but compared to the past, the department was now all business. But try as they might, the Wild West was unable to fully leave the sheriff's department. On the surface, they acted like any other modern department. But the prominence of hidden deputy gangs tells a different story. Though it had been over a century since the reign of the Los Angeles Rangers, their sense of vigilantism inspired these cliques, including the gang within the department's gang enforcement team, known as the Jump Out Boys. The Gang Enforcement Team, or GET, was added to the Operation Safe Streets Bureau in 1988 in an attempt to target LA's most violent street gangs, the Bloods, Crips, and Mexican Mafia. GET's mission was to investigate any gang activity within the Sheriff Department's jurisdiction and help on gang-related joint task forces with the police. But by 2005, the anti-gang task force had formed their own gang. Like many of the deputies' gangs we've covered, little is known about how or why the Jump Out Boys formed. 
For roughly seven years, they remained in the shadows, but in the spring of 2012, officials within the department discovered a pamphlet that described the gang's creed, initiation rites, mission, and signature tattoo. The pamphlet was said to advocate aggressive policing. One line said, We are not afraid to get our hands dirty without any disgrace, dishonor, or hesitation. It also said, Sometimes members need to do things they don't want to in order to get where they want to be. But the most obvious example of the gang's Wild West legacy was their tattoo. A red-eyed skull wearing a bandana around its head and holding a six-shooter, the classic weapon used by law enforcement during the 1800s. And behind the skull was a symbol from Wild West mythology, the dead man's hand. In 1876, infamous gunslinger and former sheriff Wild Bill Hickok was shot in the back of the head while playing poker. According to legend, in his hand were a pair of aces and a pair of eights. Since then, aces and eights has been known as the dead man's hand. The ace of spades and the eight of spades on the Jump Out Boys tattoo was thought to be a clear nod to the assassination of Wild Bill and, by association, to the brand of frontier justice he was known for. There was another nefarious aspect to the Jump Out Boys tattoo. Some members had smoke billowing from the revolver. This indicated that the deputy had been involved in a shooting. After an investigation by the sheriff's department, no criminal activity was discovered involving the Jump Out Boys. However, the tattoos troubled department officials. The members of the gang seemed to be glorifying police violence. In 2013, an anonymous member of the Jump Out Boys spoke to the LA Times, defending his tattoo. According to him, the added smoke was to commend and honor the shootings they were involved in. He explained, I have to remember them because it can happen any time, any day. I don't want to forget them because I'm glad I'm alive. It's possible this was a reason behind the alteration to the tattoos. It's also possible that the billowing smoke gave members a sense of street cred. At the end of the investigation, in February 2013, the Sheriff's Department announced that seven deputies had been identified as members of the Jump Out Boys and subsequently fired. However, according to a September 2020 report by the Center for Juvenile Law and Policy, four of those deputies have been reinstated. Under Sheriff Villanueva's tenure, disgraced or fired deputies continuously returned to the force, despite his pledge to root them out of the department. As we've seen thus far, when one deputy gang falls, another rises. In 2018, the Los Angeles Times reported that a small deputy clique with the on-the-nose name The Cowboys tattooed themselves with a skull wearing a cowboy hat. Clearly, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department has not escaped its Wild West past. Much of this has to do with the fact that Los Angeles has been, and may always be, a violent place. It can bring out the worst in people, even in law enforcement. One could argue that the sheriffs of the 1800s were products of their time. In such a brutal and ruthless period, they felt that the only way to put down violent gangs, like Las Manias, was to fight fire with fire. But it appears as though that aggressive mentality has never left, and neither have the racial tensions that resulted. 
Almost two centuries after innocent Californios were targeted by lynch mobs, LA County's black communities are being disproportionately targeted by deputy gangs like the Compton Executioners. Thanks again for listening. Next week, we're heading to Compton to explore an active deputy gang known as the Executioners. Among the many resources used, we found Six Guns Sound, the early history of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department by Sven Krongeier to be particularly helpful in our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies, Kingpins, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Kingpins and Secret Societies are Spotify originals from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode was written by Joe Guerra, with fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Julian Boireau, Brad Klein, and Brian Petrus. This episode stars Vanessa Richardson and Alastair Merton. Merton.